This is a podcast from BFM 89.9, the business station. Good afternoon. This is Earth Matters on The Bigger Picture. I'm Juliet Jacobs. The Association for Tropical Biology and Conservation, or the ATBC, recently held its 59th meeting with the aim to explore and illustrate the options and opportunities for balancing science, conservation and society around the world of tropical biodiversity. Now, environment journalist and also co-founder of Makaranga, Lau Yaohua, was in India for the meetings. He joins me now to share more about what went down last week and also how the declaration has called for practical solutions for a climate resilient future. Welcome, Yahua. How are you today? I'm good. A bit tired from all the traveling, <laughs> a bit flustered, but I'm good. Yeah, thanks for having me. Well, thank you for joining me. I know you're just back from India uh, over the weekend. Uh, and I believe you were on a travel grant, right, from the Biodiversity Media Initiative. Tell, tell me about that. Yeah, Yeah. so that there's a travel grant, uh, journalism travel grant uh, given by Internews of Journalism Network. So I think there were four or five of us that receive it this year to uh, you know to attend different biodiversity and environmental conferences worldwide so uh, fortunately I got the one to attend uh, the ATPC 59th meeting at uh, India uh, specifically in Coimbatore uh, Tamil Nadu and so yeah so I you know I spent a whole week there um, no ATBC is a uh, uh, no, it's a scientific society of uh, conservation and biologists and I think no, I, I think they have like over, you know, 900 members from, I think, close to 70 countries. And so, you know, they promote, you know, they do work. They, I mean, they, they do science, they research, but they also do a lot of like, um, you know, public communication and inform policies, you know, that kind of, and training and kind of thing. So it's, it's a huge association and uh, they have a meeting every year. Uh, or previously, they actually had uh, two meetings in Malaysia, 2014 in Malacca and 2018 in Kuching. I think I think I covered the one in uh, in, so, in Malacca, yeah. <laughs> like yeah. when I just started here as an intern. Um, so uh, yeah, how far we've come. <laughs> yeah, and at this time, the city, um, you know, the host city, uh, Coimbatore, is is very different from Malacca. Um, it's very green. I mean, that place, you know, India being in India, there is. Uh, chaotic uh, but there's a lot of convenience in the chaos <laughs> and, and and just to share like a really nice experience like Coimbatore it's um it's one apparently one of the fastest growing cities uh, in India um however there are like plenty of huge trees there and it's, it's just west of the uh, actually it's in the western Ghats itself I think and it's a huge biodiversity hotspot for India and in the city so I was there for a week and you know it's a, it's a very vibrant city so I was probably staying somewhere like in Jalan Pudu relative to KLCC, ah, you know, that okay. kind of area. Okay. And and guess what I saw in like that, that week? I saw f- three peacocks and one peahen. Wow. Two of those peacocks just flew across the city. Like, you know, one flew to a field in front of my hotel, one flew across the roundabout. And obviously, everyone thought it was normal because I was the only one following the peacock <laughs> and taking pictures. So yeah, it's, it's the kind of city with like plenty of birds, you know, a lot of bird songs and things. So it's... um. Yeah, it's very rich in biodiversity. Yeah, so the Western Ghats, right? I mean, that is one of the oldest mountain ranges, I think, and known for its high biodiversity. So I think that's also one of the reasons perhaps it was chosen, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, Western Ghats, for those who do not know about it, I mean, I didn't really know too much about it, but it's huge. The the, the mountain range itself and the drainage that it covers, right? It's like... uh, it's larger than Peninsular Malaysia, and mm. so definitely one of the uh, biodiversity hotspots in in the world. Yeah. Okay. All right. So so you were there for a whole week, I think, to the from the second to the sixth of July, right? Yep. For this fifty uh, ninth meeting. So uh, talk to me a little bit about you know what uh, the aim of this uh, these sets of talks. I mean, fifty nine years, right? It's a long time. There's a lot going on. 
Yeah. So, well, the the the, the meeting brings you know all this you know scientists together, right? Mm-hmm. And then to 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 uh, brainstorm, to share their uh, scientific findings, to discuss. You know, they have um, networking sessions. You know, the the usual conference stuff. So this time, um, they were. I think about uh, slightly more than 400 delegates uh, from across the world. I think, I don't remember the uh, number of countries anymore, but um, yeah, but, but, you know, but most of the delegates uh, this time came from Asia okay. and specifically actually many of them came from India. I think about uh, yeah, more than 70% came from Asia and then the rest were, were all over the world. Um, Malaysia, um, unfortunately, I, I don't know for whatever reason they were, <laughs> I think there were only three delegates from Malaysia, excluding me. I, I'm a journalist, so yeah. there are only three, and and all you know from Sabah, uh, you know about their work in Sabah. So I was very very surprised by, by the lack of representation from Malaysia. Um, yeah, so yeah, the the other continents also didn't, you know, the other places also didn't fare too well in terms of representation. So that that was a bit of a disappointment. But the themes that were presented there were very wide ranging. Um, you know, from very fundamental ones like deep evolution of centipedes and trees to, of course, forest dynamics, you know, talking about flowering and seeding. And uh, there was a, quite a bit on how people and wildlife were interacting, you know, putting that local community aspect uh, into the conversation, into the discussion, into the planning, into the science itself. So, so those are very important. Um, yeah, and, and, and there were also a few ter- theoretical talks um, understandably, a lot of the talks were actually about the Western Ghats. Mm. Um, actually, I was like, oh, yo, another Western Ghat talk. And then I realized, oh, Western Ghats is really important in terms of biodiversity. Okay, then I understood it. Yeah. Okay. And I'm sure, you know, um, and we can talk about this later, but there are some parallels that we can draw also with conservation in Malaysia as well. Yeah. So there were a lot about how forests, uh, so tropicals, right? And, yeah. and of course, the Western Ghat is it's very uh, diverse. Uh, but but there were also talks from the Amazon, um, a lot of talks, you know, of work done in Indonesia and also, um, you know, in Southeast Asia. So, yeah, so there would be talks that relate to Malaysia in terms of, you know, how uh, the forests are reacting to perhaps, like, say, drought, mm. or, you know, or how the animals are reacting to drought or to human disturbances. Um, and then how, you know, um, the local communities must be made part of the conversation, there was one talk about forest rights uh, in India, um, a bit of contentious uh, topic there, mm. but that also, you know, sort of like relate to uh, the indigenous people's uh, land rights here in, in, in Peninsula. Um, so, yeah. Okay. All right. So we'll, we'll get into a bit more detail about that, but let's let's talk about uh, some of the things that uh, you attended and some of the things that you learned, right? So I guess, you know, the general objective of this whole thing was, of course, to promote cooperation and, and communication, right? And interchange of ideas. I do understand there was quite a bit about uh, wildlife trade, right? Uh, anything that you can share with us? Yeah. So there, there, there were, there were actually two symposia on wildlife trade itself. Um, and I mainly went to the talks um, from the Hong Kong University Lab of uh, Forensic conservation or conservation forensics mm-hmm. and so yeah so there you know the uh, there are several uh, researchers from there and they presented so for example like uh, Tracy Lay uh, Tracy Lay uh, Priga uh, she uh, apologize if I pronounce her name wrong. Okay, now I forgot how to pronounce her name. Uh, Tracy Lay. So she presented. No, they were looking at pangolin scales, and of course, pangolin we know is one of the it's the most highly trafficked mammal uh, on Earth, mm-hmm. and uh, it's very important to know where those scales actually originated from, right? Then we can get the proper evidence, the proper data, and you know, 
put in the proper measurements uh, management. And so, but but the documents that they, that were uh, obtained in the seizures were not always correct. Uh, uh. You know, not always correct. So you can't rely just on that. So the other ways to do it, like for example, Tracy Lade, and she looked at uh, stable isotope. These are like stable is- isotope uh, analysis of the scales, which means that you know, depending on the things that we eat. We, we our body will carry different chemical what they call chemical signatures of our environment so if we eat more meat compared to if we eat more vegetables right the the composition of the nitrogen in our body is actually slightly different mm. and same if we eat more grasses well not not humans but animals <laughs> compared to if we, if we eat more uh, in other types of plants then of course the carbon also will be different sure. so anyway so she used that to look at uh, you know um, pangolin scales you know where they came from and she found that yeah, using the stable isotope uh, method, she could actually differentiate between uh, species of pangolins that have different ecological lifestyles and also uh, pangolins that, you know, differentiate between the Asian and African ones. So, uh, of course, her work is not completed, uh, but this is uh, an interesting um, approach. And there's another very interesting approach. So instead of using stable isotope, uh, Tanisha Barrett, also from uh, Hong Kong University, she looked at the ticks you know, pangolins have ticks, of yeah, course. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and when, and when this and, and in the seizures, right? The, um, the 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 scales actually still have the ticks attached to them. Wow. And so okay. she could actually analyze the ticks uh, genetically, and to you know, and, and variations of the same genes in the ticks, and that could actually determine uh, more or less where the scales are from. Not as um, localized uh, or as high resolution as we would like now, but her work is also in the in the in the beginning phases. So yeah, so using ticks and then using stable isotope, that those were very interesting ones. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, yeah. must have been very interesting for you as an entomologist as well, right? I mean, using ticks suddenly, and so that of course will require uh, a knowledge of the different ticks in the different areas as well. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So actually, Tanisha's uh, her her original like her real passion is in evolution of the ticks. Oh, <laughs> yeah. This is like an application of oh, her yeah. of her study and okay. of her her passion. And so I, I'm sure that's great. You know, always helpful to have such applications to get funding, I, I assume. Yeah. Um, so yeah, so it's, uh, yeah, she was interested in the evolution of the ticks. It, it's, it's just incredible um, to know that, you know, there are, you know, if you, if you know something so small, but because of the association, you can actually know something bigger. Mm-hmm, yeah, mm-hmm. It's, and, it's cool. Yeah. And again, you know, that just aids in, I guess, you know, um, data about, you know, the origins of where these pangolin scales are coming from. And that's going to help, you know, in the battle against the uh, wildlife trade, of course, right? Yeah, of course. And, and you know, like in, in, in Malaysia, we are a hub. Uh, we are both a source and a, a, a transport hub. And of course, a lot of it goes to Hong Kong, which is, you know, where they are doing the studies now. So, you know, if, if um, and we do have pangolin experts here locally too, but, you know, it's just that, um, you know, this kind of stable isotope methods or the tick methods, uh, they are replicable. Okay. Um, it's just a, I guess the data set that you need perhaps to fine tune um, the, uh, the results and the methods. So, so yeah, so these are all not, you know, just say specific to Hong Kong itself or, yeah, it's, it's, it's quite a global uh, application. Okay, all right, really interesting. And I guess, you know, again, this is why you have these sorts of dogs, right? Otherwise, how would you know this kind of research is going on? Um, there's something else that was interesting, something about the genetic reservoirs of cockatoos. Yeah, this was really surprising for me, you know, you know the, what we mentioned just now using those methods. Okay, the tick was surprising, but stable isotope has been around for a long time. Um, so there is another talk uh, also from Hong Kong University on wildlife trade also, but a surprising twist, I would say. So um, this is the work of uh, Astrid Anderson 
um, and she studies uh, the wildlife trade of uh, yellow-crested cockatoos, which uh, are native to Indonesia, but uh, very much endangered. I think only about 2,000 individuals left worldwide. Wow. And in Hong Kong city itself, there are about 200 of them living there. So like, <laughs> 10% of this uh, endangered bird lives <laughs> elsewhere in an introduced environment. Um, and according to Astrid's work, these birds are breeding and they are genetically diverse uh, on the island of uh, Hong Kong. And um, they were either um, they either escape uh, captivity, okay, uh, because you know. So the bird trade is legal. There is there is a, a, a vibrant and legal bird markets uh, in in Hong Kong itself, right? And um, and and so so that's that. So if the bird yellow crested uh, cockatoo, if they are home bred, they are bred at home, then it's legal uh, to actually sell them to trade them as long as they are not wild captured. Uh, but it's very hard to tell the difference. Right. But anyway, this is not the, the, to tell the difference, Astrid has another method, but that's also interesting, but that's not what we're talking about here. <laughs> anyway, so what she found, so, so these birds that are now living in Hong Kong could have either escaped captivity or intentionally released by owners who no longer want to keep them or something. However, these birds being so <laughs> resilient, they actually found, they form a, a breeding population in Hong Kong. Um, and, and, Astrid's work show that they are genetically diverse, containing, uh-huh. so which means that, you know, this population of yellow-crested uh, cockatoos in Hong Kong could potentially serve as a, a, a reservoir or a backup genetic pool, uh, you know, uh, for the uh, wild populations that are being hammered in, in Indonesia. Indonesia. Of course, this is not the exact scenario that we want to play out. Uh, we want everything in the wild, you know, to be really viable and, and, and healthy on their own. But she's just saying that surprisingly, the genetic um, diversity of these birds in Hong Kong are actually quite good. Um, usually we think we expect them to be very uh, limited in terms of genetic diversity, mm. um, but it happens not to be. But this is again also work uh, in progress and she has not published this. So yeah. So we will have to wait for the full publication to okay. see the real results. Yeah. Gosh, I want to talk to her and find out about this. I want to talk to her and find out. <laughs> we can out both about. talk to her about it and find out. Okay. Uh, yeah, well, let's just go for a quick break. Like when we come back, let's talk about some of the other interesting talks that you attended uh, at the 59th Annual Meeting of the Association for Tropical Biology and Conservation. I'm speaking today to Lau Yahua, environment journalist and also co-founder of Makaranga. Lau Yahua was at the meeting. He's breaking down some of the things that he uh, well learned, I guess, you know, in some of the talks that he attended. We'll have more. More after this quick break. Keep it right here on Earth Matters on The Bigger Picture, BFM 89.9. Welcome back. This is Earth Matters on The Bigger Picture. I'm Juliet Jacobs. In the studio with me today, Lau Yao Hua. He's an environment journalist, also co-founder of Makaranga. We are talking about, uh, well, Yao Hua's recent trip to India where he attended the 59th annual meeting of the Association for Tropical Biology and Conservation. Uh, the theme for these talk- talks were balancing science, conservation and society, things we always like talking about uh, on this show and also on Makaranga. So Yao Hua is joining us uh, to share some of the things that he learned. So before the break, uh, Yao Hua, you're t- telling us some of the things, very fascinating things, right? Right, about research into the wildlife yeah. trade, uh, ticks, uh, isotopes, uh, you know, <laughs> genetic reservoirs, very interesting. Um, but now let's talk a little bit about something else. Uh, you you also, I think you were quite fascinated by uh, some some research on animal behavior. Anything you'd like to share? Yeah, well, animal behavior is definitely like one of my major uh, loves. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, so, yeah, so 
you know, this is a meeting on tropical biology and conservation. So obviously there will be quite a few talks on animal behavior. So, um, okay, let's, let's just share several uh, that, that I've attended. There was one on uh, driver ants. So on the interaction between ants and their specialized followers, which are birds. Okay, so I think some of us would, have, would, would know that army ants in South America have, uh, you know, they, they form these massive swarms, right? They just, you know, crawl over the forest floor, eating everything in their in their path, you know, the, uh, the you know, horror, <laughs> terrible horror movies, that kind yes, of stuff. Yes. But they are true. And um, I mean, the ants are true. And then, and then these <laughs> ants, right, they have formed uh, associations like very tight relationships with uh, some specialized uh followers, which will include birds. But this relationship is not limited to South America. Uh, we also see it in Africa, which is uh, work presented by uh, Luke Powell, who is from the Biopolis uh, and CBO uh, Institute, or I guess uh, center in the University of Porto, Portugal. So he was there at the uh, meeting and he presented the findings of his team, a huge team actually from Canada, the States, uh, United Kingdom, and also Equatorial Guinea mm -hmm. uh, in Africa. And that was where they did their field study. So basically, this is um, looking at this group of ants called the uh, Dorylus ants, uh, commonly known as driver ants. Uh, forgive me, the scientists out there, I know, some, you know there's still a bit of contention on, on the proper use of this term driver ants, but I'll just use them here, okay, with this uh, disclaimer. And so, yeah, so, so these driver ants, uh, you know, again, many of them are underground, but a few species of them actually uh, hunt uh, above ground. And when they hunt above ground, the scientists can observe them and, and it also uh, gives rise to the opportunity for other animals to interact with this swarm of uh, driver ants. Right, and it's, it's, it's a massive. So one colony of driver ants could be like 20 million individuals. It's one of the largest, like, you know, uh, insect colonies in, in, in the world. And so, and then they can form, you know, huge swarms. And it has long been known that there are some birds that seem to follow these swarms and eat off the insects at the front line of the swarm, right? You can imagine if like there's a riot or like an army or you no know, butchers coming your way, you're going to run, right? And when the insects run, they either hop out, jump and stuff. And then when they jump into the air, the, the birds can swoop down and eat those insects. So, you know, out of the swarm and into the bird's beak or something like that. <laughs> so, and so this leads to some kind of specialized behavior. So anyway, Powell's team really wanted to understand in this area, uh, this is a primary forest that they're studying in Equatorial Guinea, uh, just next to a new developing capital for the country. They want to know, you know, what, what's the, um, the response of the birds and, and, and things like that. So to use it as, um, to, to find the data to show that whether or not these birds uh, and the ants can be used as a, reliable indicator of the health of the forest. So it's not just the interaction, yeah. it's also using them as uh, reliable indicators of the forest health. So what did they do? They found that, yes, indeed, um, these birds, uh, a, a few species of them, uh, uh, they live in the understory. And these understory birds are more vulnerable to forest degradation. So they established that. Okay. So in primary forests, you get more of these understory birds. But in uh, when the forest is locked or open up, then you get a drop in this in these birds. So it's a, it's a reliable indicator. And then uh, and why were they decreased right um, when when the forest is open up? So then they look at the the interaction between the birds and the ants. So this is very it's quite interesting. So they put cameras on the ants entrance 
all right, and then to see the birds. So what they found, and then they put GPS tags on the birds. Dang. So yeah, so what they found was like the birds would, and 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 Luke is very animated when he talks about this. So he he imitates the birds. So, so the birds <laughs> would come to the 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 ants' nest, you know, check out, look around, you know, waving their head or something like that, and then like and then fly towards the direction of the swamp. So they'll check out the ants' nest. Uh, uh, different ants nests uh, in the whole range and then they will you know if the ant is swarming then they fly towards the front of the swamp you know to do their feeding so obviously uh, either a learned or a very specialized uh, evolved behavior and also they found that you know um, and, and the birds also responded to the calls of other ant following birds okay yeah, and not to any, and not to the green pigeon, which doesn't follow the the ants. So yeah, so so this again uh, gives rise to uh, I mean suggest that there's a strong, uh, specialized relationship, and uh, if you I guess the idea is that if you check for one, you can check for the other, and they do indicate the health of the uh, of the of the forest, and there are of course also other animal behavior. Uh, findings, yeah. Okay, GPS tags on birds—that's uh, quite common these days. Yes, yes, yeah, yeah, okay. yeah, yeah. I think I think with as the technology gets cheaper, yeah, <laughs> you, you yeah, can put GPS tags on many things, and I guess you just need the skills to capture the birds uh, safely, nicely, mm-hmm. and then put it on. And these tags, they have to retrieve it, so they retrieve three, and there are still three more that need to retrieve in in I think later in the year. And so yeah, so they need to, these are not the ones that are disposable because they are like so expensive, yeah. <laughs> But some other animal behavior. So there was leaf cutter bees, right? That yeah. there was some, uh, some talks on that as well. Yeah, so leaf cutter bees. <laughs> when I was talking to this uh, researcher, his name is uh, P. A. Sinu, um, and, and 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 when I spoke to him, I accidentally said leaf cutter ants. I think he got a bit oh, <laughs> annoyed. <laughs> anyway, uh, so Oops. yeah, so leaf cutter bees. Um, we know we know that you know we we always hear that um, you know we need to keep our bees healthy. You know the natural these are like important pollinators, and we need to keep their natural uh, populations, the wild populations, healthy and stuff. And this applies to Malaysia too. Um, and we, we often get advice on like, we need to plant um, flowering plants, yes. right? Pollen for them. Yeah, That's, that's definitely important. Uh, but there are bees, like leafcutter bees, that don't just use pollen uh, or, or, or nectar, but they also need the leaves to build their nest. And leafcutter uh-huh. bees, you know, there are more than 600 species of uh, leafcutter bees Actually, probably more. I'm just talking about one, one, one major uh, clade. So, uh, and, and, and these bees are also important pollinators, but they need, well, because they cannot, I think, secrete the, the wax to build the, the comb for their nest. And these are solitary bees. Yeah, they are, they are not nest, they are not colony ones. Anyway, so they, they, they need to actually cut these leaves from the plants and use it to build their nest. So it's very crucial. And they're a bit slightly picky with some, some of the plants they use, right? So, and they like to use rose a lot. So what uh, Sinu's research found was that these leafcutter bees are really like to use um, uh, leaves from like rose plants and, and, and plant leaves that have no uh, latex in them, of mm-hmm. course. Mm-hmm. And, and they don't really care whether it's a native plant or an introduced plant as long as the physical structures fit and they work. So yeah, so he's, he's, uh, there, there's a lot more to it. I, I don't think I have time to talk about his whole research, but... Basically, his his advice at the end is really like, um, if the if leafcutter bees are important, if we want to sustain them in in the wild, then we need to be able to, okay, say plant the rose plant. Mm. But when you plant the rose plant, 
you should be ready that it is not for ornamental purposes. Uh-huh. That you know, because if you only want it for the flowers, then you'll be you know you may apply pesticides or whatever, and you don't want these leaf cutter bees to come because they will cut out round discs off your <laughs> rose plants, oh, and it may it, it, it may not be so great for your rose plant. Uh, although there are some other studies that say the plant can actually you know. Uh, be stimulated to flower, but in the long run, you know, if the plant is losing many of its leaves, then it's not a great thing. So if you if you want to keep the the, the leaf cutter bees happy, you should be prepared to uh, plant rose plants and and then sacrifice one or two of them for for, for the bees, which okay. is I think great. Yeah, yeah and which is, it's just nice trade off. Yeah. Uh, yeah, which we should do. And, and these bees can be quite big, and I mean they they, they don't really hurt us, and it's, it's quite interesting to see them. Yeah. Okay, and we find them here as well. Yes, yes. In fact, um, I just look up. So yeah, and and uh, I don't, I, I didn't see any study about it in, in Malaysia really, but in Singapore there was um, I can't remember when. It's not too long ago. There was a small study about leaf cutter bees uh, using the plants in Singapore, reaching what I could see was like more or less the same conclusion as uh, Sinu in okay. India and in the states. Okay. So yeah. Okay. All right. So again, you know, there's all these, uh, uh, it's all interconnected, isn't it? Definitely. Um, and just uh, very quickly moving on to bats. So there were some other things about bats capturing more moths. Yeah. Uh. So, so, you know, yeah. So bats and moths, we know, um, you know, that bats eat moths and that moths have evolved uh, either, you know, uh, physical uh, uh, traits or some, I guess, behavior to avoid or to escape the bats, right? Like, you know, the bats use their um, echolocation and then the moths can actually detect the echolocation or have like hairs and structures that actually disrupt the echolocation. But in this one, um, uh, it's uh, by Prita Day. Uh, and she found that, again, preliminary uh, results, many of them, she, she found that um, the, the bats actually feed more on some of the moths, uh, hawk moths actually, that have weaker maneuverability. Now, we, when you think of hawk, hawk moths, right, these are moths that, to, to me, are excellent flyers. These are moths that can really fly very fast. Like you, we tend to think of like moths fluttering you know, very slowly, right? <laughs> but these guys are like, hummingbirds of like the moth world. Okay. And when I saw her results, I was like, wow, this is surprising. Why would the bats be able to feed more on hawk moths than the other moths? Yeah, anyway, so she uh, her, her early work suggests that it's because the the wings of the hawk moths uh, give them less ability to outmaneuver the, the, bats. the bats. Okay. So, you know, um, they, she thinks there's something in that uh, relationship you know, between the maneuver, the weaker maneuverability of the moths and the diet preferences of the bats. Um, so I just found that uh, surprising. And, um, but yeah, but there's still more work to be done. And there were like quite a good number of other like animal behavior studies that I just couldn't get to. Okay. Like, right. yeah, like plenty of like beetles and lizards and stuff, but too many. Too much, <laughs> Only yeah. me <laughs> can't do it all. Yeah. Too many topics, too little time. Uh, okay, so that was uh, in terms of our, um, I guess, animal behavior, right? Something like you said, you know, you're really fascinated by. But this one, I think, is a huge topic that uh, affects, um, well, I mean, we're seeing it worldwide, isn't it? Conservation with humans, I suppose, um, that whole balance of um, when it should, uh, when we're not looking after uh, indigenous people's needs as well, isn't it? When we're mm. thinking about conservation. Um, some of the things that you came across uh, at these talks? Yeah, so um, there are like so many, actually. Um, and I've heard that um, from some of the participants that this inclusion of uh, social sciences and the local communities into conservation and into tropical biology research 
is has been increasing. And that's a good sign. It didn't used to be that way. So at this meeting, there were like so many talks that talk about that. Um, I'll just give a general sure. feel. And it's the same uh, whether the talk is about work done in South America or in uh, India, Asia or in Africa. Generally, it's a sense that what um, like maybe hardcore conservation or the Western concept, traditional Western concept of conservation being that nature for nature is not accepted or not practiced in many other cultures. Right. And so like, uh, for example, like the tiger reserves in, in India. So they have many tiger reserves there. And recently, Pahang just uh, announced that they're going to do another, uh, the, the first tiger reserve in, in Malaysia. Mm-hmm. So tiger reserves in India is a good thing, but also contentious um, from what I've heard. So they, it would uh, displace the local communities who have been living there for many, many, many centuries, right? But then now because we, they do a tiger reserve and if it's done in a way that does not accommodate for these local communities, they are displaced. So of course that, that leads to conflict and discontent and all, all those issues. And again with, with farmers. And so I've heard quite a few scientists saying, um, you know, conveying the message of the communities that they work with saying that, oh, you know, you protect the animals more than you protect us. Yeah. Uh, we are endangered too. Yeah, exactly. Uh, yeah. You know, that, that kind of sentiment. Um, and then there were also some talks that look at whether, um, you know, what can be done to improve the policies, you know, what kind of conversations that can be have, that we can have with the local communities right at the start, right? Okay, making them really part of the whole team itself. There were some interesting ones on um, farms like cashew nuts, that's expanding in Western Ghats in, in India. And it's a bit different compared to Malaysia. In, in, at least in Peninsular Malaysia, many of the land is either owned by mm. the, the government, the state, right? Many of the forests, forests I, I mean, are owned by the state or say like part of a Tamanagara. In this specific study, many of the land, the forests uh, in the Western Ghats are actually privately owned mm. by these families for a long time. And so they have full rights over what they want to do with it. And so, you know, they used to plant, um, uh, you know, they, they, they used to conserve the forest really nicely. But then as the economic conditions change, then they see perhaps more value in doing cashew nuts and like larger Slum. scale cashew nuts mm-hmm. and uh, doing it in a way that is perhaps not so nature friendly. Mm-hmm. But these cashew nut orchards can still harbor a lot of biodiversity. So, you know, how then to convince them or not to convince them, but to have a conversation with them to really lead to, um, you know, an operation that is uh, win-win-win for all parties. And so so there's a lot of that kind of our conversation, which totally, you know, relates to... What we're seeing here, yeah. Yeah, probably a lack of that conversation here. Yeah, yeah. here it's more like, okay, let's just... <laughs> let's just clear the land, isn't it? Um, okay, yeah, well, let's just go for one more quick break. When we come back, uh, I want to talk about some of the other uh, things that you, and I think this um, on the climate crisis, right, and the impact on ecosystems, that was a huge topic that was also covered at the talks. Speaking today to Lao Yao Hua, he's an environment journalist, also co-founder of Makaranga. Uh, he recently attended the 59th annual meeting for the Association for Tropical Biology and Conservation, or the ATBC, uh, and that theme was balancing science, conservation, and society. They also wanted to call for practical solutions for a climate resilient future. We'll tackle that topic after this break. Keep it right here on Earth Matters on the bigger picture, BFM 89.9. 
Welcome back. This is Earth Matters on The Bigger Picture. I'm Jillet Jacobs. In the studio with me, Lau Yahua, environment journalist, co-founder of Makaranga and recent returnee from the 59th annual meeting of the Association for Tropical Biology and Conservation. So that was the uh, talks that were held recently. The 59th meeting was held in Coimbatore in India uh, and they wanted to explore um, options, I guess, and opportunities for balancing science, conservation and society around the world of tropical biodiversity. So obviously a topic very close to Malaysia's heart. Uh, Yahua was there. Uh, he's given us a rundown of some of the uh, talks and some of the discussions you know, on wildlife trade, animal behaviour. Also, I think a very important one, uh, human wildlife, I guess, you know. I mean, conservation and displacement, right, of humans when it comes to uh, wildlife uh, conservation. So some interesting talks happening there. I think a lot of things that we can learn here in Malaysia. Now, a huge topic, Yahua. So this one um, is uh, uh, regarding the climate crisis, right, and the impact on ecosystems. What are some of the things that were discussed on this? Yeah, so um, there were, again, like two whole symposia just uh, for on the climate crisis impact on ecosystems and how you know they're responding. Um, I, I guess we'll just uh, pick two and talk about it. So um, I'll pick one from the Western Ghats, <laughs> which you say is a hot biodiversity uh, spot in India, yeah. huge. And so this is a talk, uh, a presentation by uh, Aniruddha Marate, who is from the Center for Ecological Sciences in Bangalore. And he studies uh, frogs in Western Ghats, right? Uh, and how uh, projected global warming would affect their distribution, in fact, their survivability. And so the climate, you know, the, the, the different scenarios for the uh, climate projects that uh, many parts of the Western Ghats would warm up. Okay, and that's the easy part. Apparently, temperature is much easier to project than rainfall. And I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm struggling with that a bit too okay. in, in our current work now. So yeah, temperatures are easier to project, but rainfall is very difficult. But, okay. okay that's, that, so what Anirudha, uh, Anirudha did was, um, so in, in the Western Ghats, there are many species of uh, frogs, many of them endemic to the Western Ghats. So these, uh, many of these frogs live uh, higher up in the hills and the mountains. And so, you know, they've evolved to that specific uh, environment and it makes it very hard for them to live uh, anywhere else. And they are also not able to disperse or to go away, mm. right? So mm. they are like islands yeah. on land, kind of. Okay. You okay. imagine that? Yeah. So now when there is global warming, um, and so where, what will happen to these frogs? So what Aniruda and his team did was just basically to take the... Uh, the projections, the different scenarios from the IPCC, and then map them onto uh, the Western Ghats, uh, looking at uh, the current uh, environmental requirements of uh, these frogs. And he studied 133 species of frogs, uh, many of them endemic. And so what, what did he find? Um, and well, let's listen to what uh, Aniruda found. Okay, we've got one clip here. Here it goes we can use those to say that whether conditions will be favorable for species or not and to what extent. And most species lose out on their suitable area uh, in the future. And this is not like distant future, it's only 40 years from now. We know at least there are 20 species that have less than 1% of the current extent. Yeah, and so we, we say that these species most likely will go extinct, unfortunately. Mm. Yeah, the dog bark that you heard there was like my <laughs> what? <laughs> Basically, he said that you know there will be about you know twenty species of frogs that will actually go extinct because they would they are projected to lose ninety nine percent of their suitable habitat. That's crazy. Of course, you know suitable habitat is kind of a physical thing. You know there could be other biological um, 
adaptations or, or, or factors that go in, but that alone itself is, 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 is really bad news. And the most vulnerable species on Neruda told me were the frogs that live higher up because they tend to, of course, have you know, narrower tolerances to environmental changes and there's no way for them to escape, right? In, in his words, he was saying that these uh, tops of these mountains are like islands suitable for the frogs, surrounded by a sea of unsuitable habitats. Mm. So basically, they're, they're trapped there if global, warming's, uh, global warming happens. And of course, we know it, it, it is happening and it will happen. However, is it all bad news? You know, uh, what good can we take away from this, right? Um, so he's, uh, so he, 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 he found that um, there is the most pessimistic scenario, which is, you know, if we don't do anything and we just burn fossil fuels and, and, and status quo, that's the worst scenario. And that's the one that he talked about where the 20 species will actually go extinct. And then, of course, there's the most optimistic scenario where we are able to keep warming below 1.5 Celsius. Okay. And that one is uh, well, not, not, not as many species will, will go extinct. So there is a, a message there. And uh, Aniruda, you know, again tells us what, what we need to be, you know, what, what the message is. It highlights that it rewards to be proactive and uh, take climate sensitive action do something uh, and it will have cascading effects with something completely unrelated as like some endemic frog sitting on the mountaintop. Yeah. So, you know, it's, this is a, it's, it's a message that we keep hearing, right, from the scientists. Oh my God, actually they've been saying it for like decades already, right? Like yeah. we need to really work hard. It, we must actually work hard on um, what, what, what Aniruda calls positive climate action, basically to, to arrest and to stop our um, greenhouse uh, emission, Emissions. greenhouse gases em em emission. So, so yeah. Okay. So, okay. I guess, you know, he has to put, I mean, we have to keep positive, right? And there are things that can be done. Um, but another topic that you did also, to, uh, I guess, you know, hear about was the, and this I think has a lot to do with, uh, you know, we're hearing about El Nino as well, right? Repeated droughts uh, and that's it help, that's reducing resilience of Amazonian forests. Yeah. So, you know, just now you, you said that we need to have hope, right? And, and a big part of the hope is in the ability or the resilience of the natural ecosystems. You know, they can actually take quite a heavy beating and, uh, you know, come back or recover from that, 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 that destruction or that damage. However, you know, scientists know that there are, there are tipping points mm -hmm. where if you, if you just push it over the edge, the ecosystem either goes down this slope that you that you can't recover from or the ecosystem completely changed its state from like a rainforest. Now, we all know that Sahara Desert used to be rainforest. So they, they, the conditions can change so much that the forest can't re recover and then it just, you know, ships, uh, sorry, it moves into an alternative stable state, you know, just another stable state. A different and, ecosystem completely. Yes, right? a, a totally different ecosystem. And, and so this is what was uh, presented um, uh, for the Amazonian forest by uh, Johanna van Passel from KU Leuven uh, in Belgium. So she studied, uh, she used huge data sets to study the impact of repeated droughts on uh, the resilience of Amazonian forests, right? And so she basically took satellite image analysis of uh, the Amazonian forest, you know, how well they're growing. Uh, and she started with 2001. And then she also got uh, data on extreme droughts. So she met the two together and basically look at how well uh, the forest is growing back after an extreme drought. Mm. And if they're growing back slower and slower, that is what is called a 
uh, critical slowing down. Like slowing down, that means you cannot recover. Your, your recovery is slowing down. So once it crosses the tipping point, then you cannot recover. Mm-hmm. Um, and she found that uh, 37% of the forests have been growing back slower. And what is associated with this uh, slowing down? Higher drought intensity, higher frequency, higher duration. So basically, the more droughts, the worse droughts, the, the more severe droughts you have, then uh, the forests are struggling to grow back. The resilience is breaking down. And she has some hypothesis for why this is, but it's basically the, the trees are either starving uh, because they don't want to lose so much water, so they close their stomata, which is the, those tiny breathing holes on the leaves, right? Yeah. And so they are starving. Or basically, they're just not able to get enough water to compensate for the loss of uh, tran- evil transpiration. So now we have these data sets to show that you know, the forests uh, might not be able to recover and these droughts, which we expect to come more frequently with global warming. So it's, it's an alarming. Um, in fact, it's just with the rest, uh, many of the talks there, there are many alarming elements. Um, but there is also hope, right? And part of the hope is like, you first need to know what the trouble is, what the problem is. And then you need to know the, 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 the magnitude of the problem, where it's happening, which is what all the scientists are doing, right? And then people are coming together to present solutions from different parts of the world. But then again, that's what scientists have been doing <laughs> last, for yeah. decades. decades right? yeah. So, you know, just kind of to, to wrap up this thing, right? Mm-hmm. Like, I feel like there's a lot of good conversations happening there. A lot of students, like graduate students, are speaking and learning from, you know, senior researchers. A lot of, like, cross-pollination, the kind of thing there. Um, and also the senior researchers, you know, definitely... I think also learning and feeding off the passion or energy of all these young researchers is definitely great. Um, perhaps, you know, I, I think, I'm not sure if it's the point of these meetings, but, you know, if we could get like the policy makers to really sit in there mm-hmm. and not just have them sometimes at plenary, you know, come give a, a talk. I think, well, actually, there's not a this on the plenary for this this meeting. The plenaries are really, really, really good. Um, but I'm just talking about the policy makers, you know, to have them there, you know, to really listen to all these scientists, force them, you know, sit in there, <laughs> listen to the scientists, and then ask them questions like, you know, what are you going to do, you know, showing that this drought is affecting Amazonian forests and then watershed basins and stuff. I think I think that would be useful. Because yeah. Yeah. we only see that, I suppose, in some of the bigger ones, right? Like the IPCC or the CBD or I guess I, I, COPS. I don't know, right? even COP then also, yeah, yeah I'm even not then sure they're listening to the scientists that much. But yeah. Listen to the science. We've been saying that for, well, decades now, isn't it? Mm. <laughs> but the, uh, it's really getting quite urgent. And of course, you know, everything that you just said, I mean, the cascading effects, isn't it? That's something else that, of course, we need to contend with. That's going to affect... Um, I mean, yes, you're, you're giving examples from across the world, but it's also happening yes. um, here as well. Exactly. So things that happen in the interior of Trunganu, Kelantan, you know, Pahang, Sabah, Sarawak would definitely affect yeah. you, us, living in the cities. And that's for sure. Um, and whether it's water, it's uh, temperature, whether it's food security, whether it's, you know, like disease. Yeah, yeah. Um, it would affect us. And uh, I, I guess sometimes we are just a bit of a denial thinking that, oh, you know, I switch on my aircon just over the weekend. Somebody in my condo had their aircon on 24 hours. I was like, what? Wow. <laughs> <laughs> this is, it's not even El Nino yet. It's not so hot yet. What is this? 
So it's that kind of like, you know, we, we are in this comfortable bubble that we build ourselves and we think it's, it's okay. We don't care about what's happening out there in the wild, but the wild is not that wild. In fact, there's no wild now probably, right? Mm. And, and, and yeah, yeah. We, we really definitely need to keep ourselves a lot more aware and connected with all these like processes that's happening around us. Yeah. yeah. Well, thank you, um, Yahua, you know, for sharing. I mean, that was really interesting. We haven't done this sort of like science show in a long time. So thank you uh, for joining us and, remi- and reminding us about the important work that scientists are doing. If you'd like to find out more about the ATBC, um, the website is tropicalbiology.org. I think there's a lot of resources there. But if you know specifically, if you'd like to find out about this conference, uh, you just need to head to atbc2023.org. Uh, I think all the information is there, you know, the programs, the information, uh, all the different talks and post-conference tours as well, I believe uh, you can find out more there. And of course, you know, if you'd like to find out more about Makaranga, just head to their website. That's makaranga.org. My thanks again to my guests. I was speaking to Lao Yahua, environment journalist and co-founder of Makaranga. If you miss any part of our chat today, you can always search for the podcast at bfm.my slash earth. You can also find it on the BFM app. This has been Earth Matters on The Bigger Picture, BFM 89.9. You have been listening to a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. For more stories of the same kind, download the BFM app.